I don't like the word scientific board. I don't like the word board at all. Board to me means passive. These are not active participants. These are passive participants, passive involvement um, in, in, in the problem. I'd like to use the word team which means everybody is actively involved in the problem. They are motivated to solve it and they have one focus, which is to solve the problem at hand. In this case, final treatment for this kid. My name is Kevin Fryert. My 30-year career at Pfizer gave me the chance to learn about the many facets of drug discovery and development. When I retired, I started Salem Oaks to help patients, parents, and caregivers understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D so that they can be more effective partners and shape the future of medicine. On Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra-rare disorder known as Setagatian type bondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sanath and his son Raghav, We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research, and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Subscribe to the Raising Rare podcast to hear the story unfold. today's episode, Sanath and I discussed the conference that he and Rami organized in March of 2020. The conference was extremely productive and inspiring. However, it was held just as the country was starting to learn about the spread of the coronavirus at that time in Seattle. In part one of our discussion, we talk about the purpose of the conference, the challenge of switching to an online format, and the high-level takeaways. In a later episode, we will dig deeper into the output of the conference and how it is shaping the roadmap to a treatment or cure for baby Raghav. So I got to congratulate you on a great conference last week, Sanath. It was very informative and very uh, interesting to listen to all those experts wrestling with this problem that's your life now. But I have to ask you, why a conference? I think one of the fears that I had going in was that this would end up becoming a, a eight hour long, boring, dragging session that nobody really wants to sit through. But it turned out to be a really productive, very exciting, high energy session. I'm glad it turned out to be that way. Why, why a conference is definitely a good question. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned a while ago, I don't like the word scientific board. I don't like the word board at all. Board to me means passive. These are not active participants. These are passive participants, passive involvement um, in, in, in the problem. I'd like to use the word team, which means everybody is actively involved in the problem. They are motivated to solve it and they have one focus, which is to solve the problem at hand. In this case, final treatment for this kid. When you have a team, especially a team of people that have not some of them have not met each other. Some of them don't even know they don't know each other's names. They work in different areas. So their primary job is focusing either on, say, mouse models or cell models or, or biochemistry. They, they work on different fields that they don't really think about other fields. But when I call 
it as a team, what brings them together is the fact that they can work together. So we needed a mechanism for us to form the team. Several weeks ago, I had sent out an, an email to everybody in the team saying, we officially formed the science team. Here's, here's everybody on the list and explain why have we formed a team and what are we doing to kind of bring them together. And the conference was a mechanism for us to bring the science team together. Again, if you just bring them together and say, um, you know, go to Bermuda and have fun, they're not going to work together as a team. Um, we do want them to work on the problem. And the best way to work on the problem is to come up with a roadmap for uh, developing a therapy for this disease. We've already made a lot of progress in identifying the first initial steps of the roadmap, sort of repurposing existing drugs and discovering markers for this disease and stuff like that and building animal models. What I have come to realize is that the outcome is a product of the people involved. And initially, I was the only person building this roadmap, which means the outcome was my outcome. But the team who are more experts in this problem, they have much deeper understanding, uh, need to be involved to create the roadmap. And so they can feel invested in it and they can, they can feel motivated enough to solve the problem as we go forward. And obviously, they are way more better. Uh, they're, they're experts here. They're much better at solving the problem than I do, uh, which is why we said, let's put together a conference. And the focus of the conference is finding a roadmap. I think that was brilliant to put together because the energy that those people showed was, was clear. They were trying to work together. And I don't know how many of them knew each other beforehand but you would never know that they didn't know each other. They jumped right in. This was right in the midst of the COVID ramp up. And I was so excited to come out to Seattle and meet you guys. And then you had to shift from a face-to-face to a virtual. Can you tell us about that process and that decision and how it changed what happened? A plan never sticks to a plan. It always changes. We had been preparing for this conference since January, uh, actually possibly December. Um, and we set a date. We had blocked all the key people's calendars. We had identified a location, a nice, uh, a nice venue in Seattle. We had even planned for a networking dinner on the evening. We had invited several uh, local biotech leaders uh, and entrepreneurs here to come and join uh, for the dinner. Um, so it was going to be a, a day full of energy, uh, networking, and obviously science. And then COVID happened. Um, before even we realized that COVID was happening, people started emailing us saying, you know, their institution might have a policy against travels pretty soon. And uh, in hindsight, I was sort of naive and I thought COVID is just uh, a spark that would die, die, die down soon, but it turned out to be a wildfire um, that just kept spreading and spreading. Right around that time, Raga was in the hospital for uh, respiratory problems because he got cold. This is what happens with the rare kid, rare disease kid. And the, the, if we don't manage the symptoms better, they ended the hospital, which is again a reminder why COVID is such a big deal. And so all of this happened at the same time, and we basically didn't have any time to react to moving the conference virtual. But we eventually, you know, got things settled at home, and we spent some time uh, figuring out what a virtual format would look like. Uh, by the time we decided to move this to virtual, we already had uh, the agenda set, the plan set. Uh, Dr. David Fejenbaum was giving the keynote. But fortunately, he said he couldn't travel. He was going to do it via Zoom. Um, several other members of the team said they couldn't travel. They had other plans. 
Um, so they were going to join via Zoom. Um, so it, it sort of made it nice that way that we could move the conference online. Now, the challenge was the, if the original format was geared towards uh, an in-person meeting, which means it had longer sessions, it had longer talks, um, it had a lot of room for networking. Our, our, again, as I said originally, if you want to form a team, the team has to work together. They need to know each other. Networking is, is the best way for them to know each other and a lot of gaps in the, in the agenda for networking um, was injected before. Now, in an online setting, uh, I, I don't think anybody would have the energy to to sit beyond like an hour, an hour and a half worth of uh, a, a meeting, right? Um, most certainly, I have never been able to pay attention to more than an hour and a half worth of online meeting ever. Um, so one of the principles we decided was uh, no session would be longer than an hour and a half. Uh, the longest, I think, was two hours, but there was a little break. Uh, in between. We also have to accommodate time zones. There is the East Coast and the West Coast. Breakfast in the West Coast is lunch in the East Coast. Um, so we had to make accommodations for that. Um, we also had to make sometimes some, some time adjustments for you know actual uh, networking and like bio breaks and stuff. And, and, and turned out the breaks were a great opportunity for us to kind of run the previous session into uh, without delaying the whole conference. So we were able to sort of finish the conference start the conference on time and finish the conference on time. And almost every session except the first couple went according to plan. Um, so we readjusted the agenda to an online format. We had three sessions with 20 minutes of break in between. So what do you think you learned from having to change on the fly? Kind of big picture, what did you learn? It's hard for people to focus. Uh, and I think in hindsight, I would have stuck with this format for the in-person as well. It gave such a small time. Uh, it gave just a small time for people to spend, focus on. So they would focus on it. And if, if you had a longer session, a longer meeting, people would lose track. They would look at the emails and stuff like that. Um, so shorter, smaller sessions uh, are better. That's the, that, that's the learning from the agenda side of things. Uh, the learning from you know changing the plans on the fly is that that's how it always is. That's just how it always is. I, I don't think any plan sticks to a plan. We are used to changing plans in the fly now, uh, and this was no big deal for us. Yeah, like they say, every boxer has a fight plan until the first punch lands on him. So how do you think the attendees reacted to this? I, I received a lot of emails after the conference was over. I, I, as always, I send thank you emails to every single person after the conference, and I, I received responses back. A couple of themes emerged. People said it was inspiring, and uh, another group of said, people said it was productive. So, inspiring and productive are definitely two strong words to describe a conference, and I think it was definitely successful. So, let's talk about it a bit. But before we get into details, I just want to know from like the headlines of this, what were the biggest takeaways for you? The first biggest takeaway was. Uh, experts are experts. <laughs> really good at what they do, uh, and and once you start, you know, start the right, uh, light the right fire, uh, they start coming up with ideas like like you cannot imagine. Uh, but that was the biggest takeaway. That's that's the key. That's one of the key takeaways there. Uh, the, the second one is obviously um, we decided that uh, exon skipping antisense oligonucleotide drugs will not work for this disease. 
we made several decisions through the day a lot of those decisions were decisive what i mean by that is you know people generally tend to throw out ideas as oh maybe we could try this or maybe we could try this drug or maybe we could try the supplement or this 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 uh, uh this assay or whatever right um, and you it's usually one person suggesting an idea and it's dropped to the floor uh, in in this case when someone suggests an idea uh, another person would pick it up and elaborate on it. Another person would give feedback. And in a few minutes, uh, an idea became a decision and it was decisive. People would plus one the decision at the end. And I had communicated upfront from the beginning that this is a conference where we are making decisions on the roadmap uh, and not a conference uh, where we are talking. At the end of this day, not so much the intellectual side, what were you and Ramya feeling? Relieved, I think relief is the is 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 the feeling. So leading up to the conference for the last three weeks, we had been dealing with a lot of crisis after crisis. Raga was in the hospital for a week, and then we came back home, and our contractor for the new house, things didn't go well well there. We were nearly going to be kicked out of our current apartment because our lease was ending, and we didn't have a new place to stay in. And Raghav got sick again and COVID happened and then we moved and the conference happened. So uh, day after day, week after week, it was nonstop, 24-7 work and dealing with a crisis after another, most of which we had no control over. And right after the conference, just given how productive and, and, and high energy it was, we had to execute, we had a timeline on uh, it's all done. Like we basically are back into our normal life now. That's just how it felt. And then we went for a, went for a drive. Because COVID doesn't allow anybody to go. <laughs> we, we can't do anything but go for a drive. So let's break down the meeting a bit. There, were, there was a keynote followed by three scientific sessions. They're relatively short, hour, hour and a half each. And there was enough break time for people to go stretch their legs and, and come back with focus. The keynote was given by David Fagenbaum from the University of Pennsylvania. Why did you want David to speak? The whole conference structure agenda, the keynote, is all stemming from this one purpose that I had for the conference, which is to bring, to create the team. The team existed virtually on paper as a list of people, but they don't, uh, until you form, uh, until you work together, you don't form as a team. And uh, for, for a group of people to work together, they need a cultural thread that binds them. They need a culture. Uh, I don't have the time to, you know, have all these experts sit together in one room uh, and, and spend three or eight months on solving a problem and build a culture of, uh, over time. I don't have that much amount of time. Uh, all I have is eight hours of their time. Right. Uh, the, the fastest way I could create a culture was to explain what I am feeling like. And I think if, if every, every uh, researcher, clinician, industry partners, if every person understands what uh, a parent like me goes through uh, when their kid has rare disease, I think they will automatically get the culture that I want. And David Fagenbaum, unbeknownst to me, a lot of my roadmap, a lot of my approaches are fundamentally shaped by his framework that he has put together. 
And I, I actually realized that uh, during the keynote, when I reflected upon his framework and when I reflected upon my work, um, a, a lot of what I'm doing has been kind of sort of stemming from his work, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, and so I wanted David to explain his story, rescue himself of going through the struggle and, and his story of how, you know, he had to step in himself to save him, uh, that nobody else would do it. He's great because he can tie in the emotional aspects with the scientific aspects and he can sort of weave a story around it, which, which is very important. So that's why I wanted David to give, give the keynote. And it was pretty clear when I was thinking, thinking about who should be keynoting this conference, it was, I, I wouldn't have anybody but David to do that. He set the stage very nicely. And his story sets the stage very nicely, just as it unfolds. And the energy he puts into it, the, the positive energy that comes from him, knowing that he's fighting himself every single day, and you wouldn't know it looking at him. He also laid the groundwork, and I grabbed a bunch of the slides in, in screen captures of how to set up your, your network. He has this collaborative network for Castleman's disease, and you have the beginnings of that now. You're, you're on the same path that he took, and you're learning from him. How do you bring people together to have the new conversations? So after David spoke, I found the next presentation great personally, because I learned about the disease and I learned about some of the other kids with the disease. And it was uh, Dr. Kristen Wigby. She presented five cases of SSMD, one of which was Rigav. What did you take away from her discussion? I thought I knew the disease in and out because I'm, I have a kid and I'm seeing him every single day. So I, I thought I knew the disease. Um, and I think just by understanding what the other kids have with this condition, it, it gave me a different perspective of what this disease does to other people. Uh, I actually know the other parents as well, uh, parents of the kid, kids that Dr. Big B is tracking. I, I know them, I've met him, but I think seeing that the details, I have not seen the details of what these kids are going through and seeing the details, it, it gave me a different sense of, sense of purpose. Sometimes it's scary when you see that there are other kids with this condition that that we are that I'm supposed to support. It's 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 a scary responsibility to take on. Uh, I don't think I'm ready for it, but uh, at the same time, it's it's good to keep that at the horizon. The responsibility you felt for others. Tell me a little bit more about that. So the first time I felt this responsibility was on September twelfth last year, 2019. So on September 11, we wrote a blog post explaining what we are dealing with my, with my son and we sent it over to our friends and family, which went viral. It went all around Facebook. And the next day, someone reached out to us from on Facebook and uh, they said their kid also has uh, a rare disease with a GPX4 mutation. And that's the first time I felt this responsibility because uh, until then I thought I was only treating my son. And then now I see another kid with GPX for mutation and I felt like, wow, I, I just have one kid and I'm, it's already an overwhelming amount of responsibility with one kid. Now I have a second kid that I'm supposed to support and I, I, I don't even know what it means at this point. Through the next few days, I sort of di digested what it meant and the kid also became very personal to me. It was... Uh, 
a responsibility that I, I, I felt it, it was not given to me. It was something that I had to take on. We definitely felt uh, we can take responsibility for, for our action, but even for my kid, a lot of things are beyond our control. And that's something that we would have to accept as we go along in this journey. So that was the first time when we took responsibility. And when I met the parents of the kids, um, I felt the same sense of responsibility. But that time, I was a little bit more confident that I can do something about these kids because we had progressed along. We had made more headway in finding treatments and repurposing drugs and stuff like that. So it, it, it felt uh, a little bit more confident. Uh, but in the back of my mind, I, I keep reminding myself that a lot of things are outside our control. We can do the best we can, uh, whatever it turns out. We're, we're happy with it. On our next episode of Raising Rare, Ramya will join Sanath and I as we explore the challenges of everyday life raising a child with a rare disease. Please join us. If you'd like to follow Raghav's story, please subscribe to Raising Rare.